So Steph, what's the new giveaway? Yep. So this week we're giving away two of the Misfit Vapor smartwatches. So we're you know partnering with Beta, as you guys have probably heard in the past few weeks, and we're highlighting some of the best tech gear products that's out there right now. So this week, the Misfit Vapor 2. Yeah. And when I saw this watch, I didn't know anything about it. You were doing the unboxing, you checked it out. And what type of things does it do? Because it looks like it tracks just about everything or as much as you want to. Yep. So it does health tracking. It has a GPS on there so you can see where you're at. It has a lot of smart suggestions, which are really nice. So when you're doing the unboxing of the watch, you can kind of go through each screen to see the functionalities, which are really nice. Because I feel like a lot of times with these smart watches, there's a lot of... They're hard to get set up. Yeah, super hard to get set up. A lot of features that you don't even know existed until you read about it. So the smart suggestion feature was just cool because you swipe through and it's like, here's your step count. Here's your health metrics. Here's notifications and, you know, from your text, your calendar invite, all that throughout the day. Here's the weather. So really cool. And also I liked it because it has different band sizes where, you know, my wrist is pretty small and usually things don't fit my wrist. And this is just perfect because it was a nice fit, very clean, sleek and small. So we're giving away two of these smartwatches. If you go to mission.org slash giveaway, you can enter to win and get more entries by referring friends. And we'll see you there. Yes. And all your friends that you refer are going to get are world class or as I just read on Twitter, there's, we're getting some hate mail about the newsletter, but we're also, we've never got more likes before. So we, I think this is a good what sign. What hate mail are you talking about? I just got some, uh, just got some. Really? Yes. Yeah. It's pretty funny though. Should we call them out? It made me smile. What's no, their name? No, no, no I, already, I already did. Um, no, we'll, we'll have a special segment for hate mail later. But uh, yeah, so you'll get that newsletter when you sign up. You'll get uh, entries into the giveaway and you can get more by referring friends. So sign up. You can win a Vapor 2, uh, which has everything from heart rate monitoring, a built-in GPS, and an NFC chip for contactless payments. That's pretty cool. Sign up to win. And now, on to the show. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you are listening to Mission Daily, selected as Best of 2018 by Apple. Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Hi there, and welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, we have Jennifer Tejada. Jennifer is the CEO of PagerDuty, a digital operations management company. Its cloud-based platform manages real-time operations for any type of business to ensure its digital services are always on. Since its founding, PagerDuty has drawn a lot of attention from investors and is growing faster than ever. The company, which went public earlier this year, hit a $1.8 billion valuation and is now serving more than half of the Fortune 100 companies. That valuation and the success of PagerDuty in such a relatively short amount of time is thanks in no small part to Jennifer's leadership. Her unique brand of management style was inspired by her father, who ran and operated a hospital when she was young. To this day, she still turns to the lessons she learned from her father while growing up. In today's episode, Jennifer joins Chad to discuss her work with PagerDuty, how she uses her father and his serving others mentality on a day-to-day basis, and what she foresees PagerDuty doing in the future. Jen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you here. There's a lot to talk about, but I was hoping to start at the origins. So when people ask, where did you come from and where'd you grow up? Oh, I grew up in Minnesota and then we moved all over the Midwest, but I'm definitely a Midwestern kid. And living in the Midwest, so my family's from Ohio. 
Uh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. I'm and, from Michigan. <laughs> yeah. So uh, there, some of them have actually made the exodus to Michigan now. So they're wow. not, the family still goes up to visit them and uh, vice versa. So we're trying to bridge the gap however we can. That's but, good. So when you were growing up, um, I've heard that your father played an important role in your life in instilling some leadership values and things like that. So what role did your dad play in helping shape your upbringing uh, growing up? Well, I think he set the pace and he set the example and he set expectations, you know, and just like in a company, you set your cultural values and those values sort of bind the organization on what your lowest expectations are and also what your biggest aspirations are. I think his expectation for us as kids is that we would uh, make big contributions to the community around us and that we would feel a sense of responsibility and accountability towards the communities that we were part of. And that included having a really strong work ethic. He used to say actions speak louder than words or actions shout words whisper. So it was really so about true. putting your money where your mouth was, so to speak, and and showing through demonstration as opposed to just talking about something he would remind us frequently that life wasn't fair and that we should just get over it and move on and try and make the best of things, which is a message that I don't hear enough of uh, these days. And uh, he was very oriented around ensuring that we surrounded ourselves with the best possible people, whether it was how we chose our friends or how we chose to spend our free time. And as we got older, how we thought about where we would go to school or where we would work. And he unfortunately passed away when I was in my early 20s. So I didn't get the opportunity to get advice and guidance from him as I got older and, and got more involved in my career. But interestingly enough, some of those things that he taught us very early um, have served me very well as a CEO. And he was a CEO too, right? Yeah, he was the head of a hospital. And growing up, did you get to go in to see him at work or what was that like seeing your father run a large organization that has a lot of moving parts, a lot of complexity and no room for air? It was funny because for a long time, I didn't actually know he was the boss because he didn't act like one. And we'd walk into the hospital and we'd say hi to everybody we bumped into, the janitor or nurse or, you know, the chief of the medical staff uh, or someone working in the cafeteria. And it was always the same. It was the same sort of warm greeting. He knew everybody by name. He um, knew something about their family or their kids. And so I really didn't understand that he was in charge until I was older, but I used to go with him anytime I had a day off from school or often he would go in on Saturdays to catch up in the office and I would be filing. I think I learned how to alphabetize <laughs> in his office, actually, through filing. Uh, I was an ace at the copying machine. Uh, I sold a lot of Girl Scout cookies in the office over the years. Thin mints, and, I hope. <laughs> yes, thin okay, mints and samosas, absolutely. <laughs> and one of the things that I found was that he his warmth would light up other people. And I think there's a lesson in that, that it's very hard to not smile back at somebody who's smiling at you. Yes. And that stuck with me. Like, what's the point of being anything other than kind and gracious and trying to have a little fun at sure. work? And and that reflects back to you. And, not you know, not every day is a great day. Uh, and I'm not always in a wonderful mood, but I'm generally pretty optimistic and try not to take myself too seriously. And I think I got a lot of that from him. We also, as a family, were taught to help him give back in the workplace. So from being a very small child, I served pancake breakfasts to the night shift in the cafeteria, Thanksgiving to employees on Thanksgiving Day or in the middle of the night on Thanksgiving for the night shift, et cetera. 
We participated and volunteered in all kinds of service projects uh, with and around the hospital and other non-for-profits that he supported um, as a community leader. And that was just a part of my family. And I, when I look back on it now, I know part of that was because we didn't have a lot of money to give away. So the way to give was to share your talent or your time or your capability or your interest uh, or even just the ability to listen. And uh, that's still a part of who I am today. And I think uh, the way my family thinks about things. How do you think about building culture when it comes to serving? Because I think service is one of those things that sometimes we don't make enough time for it. But when we finally do and we start serving, it feels great. And the people we're doing it with get closer with us. We can build you know, friendships and powerful relationships through service. So how do you think about service when it comes to like the work you're doing today? I think service starts with looking outward instead of looking inward. And often when you're building your cultural values or you're building the the framework for how you want your company to feel and smell and sound, you're thinking really hard about yourselves. You're thinking really hard about the company itself, the people within the company, your own sense of values, et cetera. And at PagerD, you really try to focus outward. So one of our first cultural values is champion the customer. And the idea is that it starts with that person who we are here to serve, the user, the user community that has you know, built the foundation for PagerD right. to become a large company, a uh, large and successful company. And I think equally making sure that when we make decisions, we're making those decisions with the customer and their problem set and even their customers in mind, not just what's good for us or right. what makes sense for us at the time. Some of our other values are really oriented around how you help others be successful. Uh, one is called bring yourself, which sounds self-centric, but the idea is that you should be able to bring your own authentic self to work, but you also are responsible and accountable for making sure the person next to you or the person on your team can also bring themselves to work. And that includes helping amplify their opinions, making sure they have a true seat at the table, making sure they come up to speed quickly if they're new, that you help each other and collaborate on things to get to a better outcome for the customer who we're sure. championing. And so I think really focusing outward and thinking about who are the stakeholders that you serve, mm -hmm. who really makes or breaks your success as a business, right. starting there as opposed to starting inside the business. So let's, for people that don't know, let's talk a little bit about who your customers are and how you're serving them. Because I think at this point, you're serving more than half of the Fortune 50, if I got that right. That's correct. So what are you providing to them? And that's uh, that's an incredible stat. But how did you get there and how did your team get there? More importantly than the half of the Fortune uh, 100 that we serve, we serve hundreds of thousands of users who are actually sure. the people that choose our product and that start with our product and often are the people that champion and introduce us into larger parts of their organization or senior leadership within their organization. So we were really built uh, over 10 years ago by three co-founders who came from Waterloo University. They had gone to school together and they had worked at Amazon together and they had experienced this issue of uh, being alerted, being paged literally on a one-way pager whenever anything broke. And when I say anything, I mean anything, not just things they were responsible for, not just products or services their teams were working on, but anything across the infrastructure or application stack that supported uh, their team's products and services. And back then it was the procurement environment for Amazon.com. And they found that it was a, really hindered their lifestyles. It was really hard to be successful in their day jobs when they were being woken up all night and all weekend for things that were breaking unexpectedly. 
And I think it's not just the disruption and the loss of time. It's the stress. It's the physical and emotional and mental stress when you're under time pressure, when something's not working and you know you're the first line of defense and you have no idea what you're doing. You have no idea what, what the problem is. You don't have any context or background on the situation itself. And that was the early seed that became PagerDuty, this challenge that as companies build products and services that are primarily digital, uh, and as the technology that sits behind those services is increasingly complex, the data and the signals that are coming at developers and IT people, operations people, they're getting more complex. And they're really hard for human beings to pick apart and understand or to find signal from the noise. Mm -hmm. So PagerDuty uses machine learning and direct connection to anything that's software enabled and turns those signals into insight and information and actionable direction. And we actually orchestrate the work associated with identifying a problem quickly, uh, getting the right people with the right skill sets on the right problems at the right time, and running the response that then enables that company or that customer to serve their end consumer seamlessly. And hopefully, as our uh, users and our customers get more mature in the way they leverage our platform, they get better at preventing major incidents uh, that impact businesses and customers from happening. So the idea is you... Over the years, we've helped people respond more effectively and more efficiently to unforeseen or unplanned incidents that can damage their brand reputation or damage their business. But increasingly, we're focused on helping them prevent those incidents from ever happening by seeing the early signals and the early symptoms, leveraging machine learning and really automating what historically has been a very manual, people-intensive process. It sounds like if I was to sense like one theme there, it's like maybe reducing anxiety for developers and teams that are under a lot of stress already. Is that fair to say that maybe that's a ripple effect? It is. The, uh, we talk a lot about our, our mission to elevate work to the outcomes that matter and to make sure that people, when you arm them with the right information and the right insights and the right systems and processes, they can make great things happen. But when they're disrupted by things that are unexpected and unplanned like that and they're not organized in the way they respond, a, a lot of the innovation leaks out of a system pretty quickly. Sure. And when you're thinking about customer success, because it, it sounds like you are a lot How do you think about customer success and how are you approaching that challenge? So many different CEOs cite customer success as being their competitive advantage or something that they're going to invest more into. What's customer success like at PagerDuty and how do you think about that? I think of it in terms of the whole life cycle. So what are the set of problems that our customers, that our users are trying to solve? Mm -hmm. And which of those problems cause either the most pain or the most cost, and which of those problems are underserved today. And those are the problems we tend to focus on because we think those are the problems that are creating barriers to our customer success. And we want to be part of removing those barriers. The second thing is making it really simple and easy for customers to engage with us and not become another one of those problems. Sure. Uh, and so the user experience, the customer journey, even the, the, the voice, the way we engage with customers and we're engaging with them person to person is really important to us. And then Third is, how does the customer measure their own success? And I think it's really easy for technology companies and people associated with technology to talk a lot about the technology itself Mm -hmm. and the solution potentially, and even the cool tech that underpins the solution. When at the end of the day, what we all should be doing is trying to understand what is it that our customers are trying to accomplish? Who is their end consumer? What are some of the challenges that they face? What do they need to deliver in order to ensure Friday's payroll or next year's plan or their personal promotion or, you know, a delightful customer experience for their end customer? And so I think 
spending more time understanding their businesses and their roles and what makes them a hero versus what leaves them at sort of at zero is as important, if not more important than the technology solution itself. And I think that in a culture of innovation like Silicon Valley, there there are a lot of technology solutions looking for problems. Mm-hmm. And it really should be the other way around. Like, do you really understand the big issues keeping people from being successful, feeling fulfilled, enjoying a purposeful day at work? Right. And sometimes, though, when we're trying to get to that you know, root cause or that root problem, it can be difficult because individuals are working so hard. They're juggling a lot of things. And oftentimes it takes a whole number of different conversations before you get to the root of what the actual problem is that they need to solve first. So in that regard, it sounds like customer development is something that you all are engaging in, too. How do you think about customer development and adding new product features? One of the things that we think about is watching how people work, not just asking them. And, sure. Actions and, speak louder. Yeah, yeah. And anticipating what some of their ni- needs might be as opposed to asking them what their needs are. Because if you ask somebody what they need today, like if you ask me what I need today, I'm going to think about what I need in the next hour and a half. Right. I'm not going to give you the long view of what I think I need over the next 10 years. Right. Soy latte. Tea. Exactly. <laughs> sure. Bingo. Yeah. And so I think I think really observing how customers work and starting to look at how that may change over time and what are some of the macro trends that impact the way our users work. Mm-hmm. For us, it's things like digital transformation and cloud migration, people that have experienced a bad incident or a security breach, security-centric incident, will often reach out to PagerDuty because they don't want to ever go through that again. Because not only did it have a terrible business impact potentially, but it's also had a personal impact on them. Sure. Uh, And so I think really understanding the long game is important. And in order to understand the long game, you have to look, you have to listen, you have to watch, and you also have to make some bets. You have to predict where you think things are going. And so how are you thinking about prediction? That's something that's almost nearly impossible. Sometimes we're able to hit it, sometimes not. Are are there any exciting trends that you're watching to maybe better understand what's going to happen in the future or at least how to prepare for it? I think thinking about what processes humans want automated first is important. I think there's, you know, occasionally you see people push back when it comes to automation or machine learning based automation, mm-hmm. AI. They're concerned about being replaced. They're concerned about their roles being diminished in some way. And actually, if you think about the problem from the perspective of what are the things that humans have to do that a, a robot could do better, such that humans could spend their time on things that are more meaningful, more important to them. Right. So, a lot of people are talking about machine learning and AI. I think those capabilities are only as good as the data sets they sit upon. And PagerDuty has a humongous data set based on human behavior, as well as events and signals and workflows and business metrics that our platform has leveraged and developed over 10 years. And so we, you start to see this opportunity to automate repetitive, mundane tasks that save people a lot of time and elevate them to the work they really want to be doing. Sure. And so I think there's a lot to to think about in terms of where do you start from an automation perspective? Right. Do you start with just low-hanging fruit or do you start, start with the stuff that people hate the most? And I like the idea of starting with the stuff people hate the most. Same. <laughs> let's let the machines do what they're good at. And let's become more human. Uh, yeah, don't ask out. me to do anything a robot could do better than me. Yeah. Like put me in charge of the stuff that I can uniquely do. Exactly. Let's back it up for a second and talk about your early career and kind of how you got to where you're at now, because I've, you're the CEO of PagerDuty. That's very impressive. Uh, you're on the board of Estee Lauder. You've been on the boards of a number of other companies, but it wasn't always that way. 
you started, I think, at the University of Michigan. And where do you go from there? And uh, what were you up to at the University of Michigan? Well, I mean, I'm a product of the public schools. I went to public schools growing up and then state school in the University of Michigan. And out of Michigan, I went to Procter & Gamble. They found me on campus. I, I did not go searching for a job. It was not nearly strategic as a lot of my colleagues are in mapping out their career. I really just wanted to work in a place that was full of great, smart people where I could surround myself with folks I could learn from. And P&G definitely ticked that box in, in a big way. I mean, back in the day, when I was at Procter & Gamble, they were investing hundreds of thousands of dollars in individuals to develop their leadership capability and, and also train them on classic sales, marketing, product management, brand, strategy, functionality, and capability. And that's a gift that I constantly uh, appreciate because I find every day at work, I leverage some of the leadership lessons I learned in my first job. Oh, wow. And I'm not sure everybody can say that. So uh, I'm very appreciative to Procter & Gamble. In fact, I've never sold the stock that I got at P&G. I have some sentimental attachment to it. Very <laughs> There's cool. not a lot of it, but it's, yeah. it's still hanging around. And interestingly, appreciating well over decades. Uh, yeah. So so it's been, it, it's been a really interesting journey in that I went from consumer packaged goods with a focus on classic marketing, brand management, sales and marketing, to wanting to get into the tech industry. I could see the internet emerging as this really interesting control plane that was going to change the way consumers engage with brands. And I wanted to be a part of it. What was probably less likely was that my first tech company would be a supply chain automation software platform company, uh, as opposed to more traditional consumer tech, which is, I think, where everybody expected me to go when I left P&G. And what I liked about that software company was the, the value proposition was highly quantifiable. You mm -hmm. could go into a customer and say, this is how long it takes you to get from raw materials to a shirt you know, that you're selling. And this is how much it costs. If you automate parts of your supply chain and you do some things more efficiently, it could cost a lot less. Right. And you can put that, you know, that, that additional OPEX to work somewhere else. And uh, I, I just liked the, the measurability of that, Definitely. the ability to keep score. It seemed a lot easier than some of the consumer tech companies back, you know, before the bubble burst that were really cool sounding and sexy, but I couldn't figure out how those businesses made money. Sure. And for a, you know, nobody just, else could. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm a simple person from the Midwest, you know, who's worked my whole life. Like for me, I got to understand like how I'm going to make a sustainable paycheck. Right. And so that was just a great lesson in making sure you really understand the value proposition that. There is not just product to market fit, but solution to problem fit, mm -hmm. because I think that's what drives value for customers and that there's a big market. Right. And, you know, back then there was a huge market. It was kind of the second industrial revolution for manufacturers and suppliers. Semiconductor was booming. Automotive was booming. So I learned a lot in that job because we grew from less than, I think, 100 million in revenue to a couple billion in revenue in the period of time that I was there from hundreds of people to thousands of people. So it was really great lesson in hyperscale and hyper growth, not only in what to do, but what not to do. Right. Well. And I got the tech bug, never sort of left. I've stayed in tech in a number of different ways as both a board member and as a, an operator for the better part of the last 25 years. And I, and I love it. And I love it because it is, by definition, a culture of innovation. Your job is to continue to reinvent and disrupt as a mm -hmm. leader in the tech industry, at least if you want to be in a successful business within the tech industry. Uh, a growth orientation 
means you're going to push limits to mm-hmm. try and uh, build and build more effectively every week, every month, every year. And I like the challenge and constantly iterating and improving and changing the way we do things. I think my team is exhausted by my interest in constantly changing and improving things. But from a career standpoint, moving into tech gave me a chance to try a lot of my functional expertise that I learned in sales and marketing and product and brand uh, and build my sort of leadership capability so that by the time I was ready to be a CEO, I'd done almost every job uh, right. that I was leading or managing. Including CMO roles and a host of other CMO, roles. COO, yeah. M&A, products. Sure. You know, I've spent a lot of time looking at financials, although I've never worked directly in the finance organization. Right. And I would say the board work has really helped me understand corporate finance and accounting, uh, generally speaking, because being on audit committees over the years and having to really understand a business through its balance sheet and through its income statements has really strengthened my financial acumen and something I'd recommend to any exec who's trying to build their general management or executive skills. Sure. But it's it's been a very diverse career. I've worked outside of the U.S. for more than half of my adult wow. life. Um, I lived in Australia for many years. My last uh, two companies were very global in nature Keynote was more domestic when I got here, but we're now building a very strong global presence uh, and and global market reach. So I enjoy seeing the world and engaging with the world from a global perspective as opposed to seeing things from a local kind of microeconomy perspective. Yeah. So what type of lessons did you pick up as you started to travel the world or work outside the U.S.? Because I know I've, I've got to travel the world in a number of different jobs and those experiences, they're not always... They push you out of your comfort zone, right? They can be pretty uncomfortable. However, you learn a lot. So any stories or lessons that you learned from your travels? Well, there's some pragmatism. One is I can pretty much live infinitely out of a single bag, a carry-on, and I can sleep anywhere. And these are two really important skills if you're logging a million miles every couple of years. Sure. Uh, Number two is I enjoy the immersion into a different culture as opposed to think about how I have to adjust to it temporarily. Right. And I think you learn a lot more when you sort of drop yourself into the culture as opposed to visit it as an outsider, if that makes sense. And it may mean simple things like staying at a local boutique hotel instead of a corporate global brand that you're familiar with or walking or running in every city that you're in and just getting to know the neighborhood a little bit while you're there. Sure. Having dinner at a colleague's house instead of going out to a restaurant, spending lots of time in the office. I do a lot of breakfast, coffees, dinners, walking, drinks, et cetera, just to engage with people and get to know them and understand where they're coming from. So that when you're remotely dealing with a big business problem, you actually understand each other a little better. They understand you. They know what they're dealing with. So when I hit a region, I'm sure everybody meets with the leader of their, you know, of that theater when they're there uh, as a CEO. But I try and get to know a little bit more about them every time I'm there. Uh, And I think that's important because... When they're remote, it's harder for them to ask for help. It's harder for them to leverage your time because they get so much less of it compared to their domestic colleagues who are running around the same office as me. I think that there is a lot that can be gained from listening to how people in regions are building because they don't have the benefit of the same resources and brand recognition that you do in your home country. It'd be so and much more creative, leapfrogging. They can be so and doing, much more inventive yeah. and so much more efficient. Right. Sometimes I think the constraints associated with building in a new market are super healthy 
because they force you to really prioritize in in a way that you're sometimes not forced to do uh, in in the head office, so sure. to speak. And along the way, though, you've had time to or you've made time for a number of other pursuits. Uh, if I read right, you're a skipper. Yes. So <laughs> no, to, I don't get to do that very often anymore. But yes. So tell us about that. Why why did you choose to go get that certification? And uh, did you have you piloted a bunch of uh, yeah, yeah, so I, I love the water. I'm a water person and I'm happiest if I can see the sea or I'm in the sea. And sure. uh, one of the things I love about Australia is just your access to the ocean. So, you know, an average day living in Sydney, as you go for a morning ocean swim, you bump into a bunch of people, you know, from work out, out just off the beach, you know, out in the surf and you might have a work a full day and then do a twilight sale and bump into some more people that you know in the evening. It really is a water culture. Some people call it a beach culture, but I really think it is a seaside culture. And I think sailing is a really intelligent form of sporting. You have to be thoughtful in terms of how you engineer your vessel and how you manage and maintain your vessel. Uh, a lot of the sailing that I've done is one design racing where every the specs of every boat are the same. So it really comes down to how well the crew works together and leverages the technology on board. And the America's Cup is an example mm-hmm. of one design racing. I've not raced in America's Cup, to be clear. Not yet. Not yet, <laughs> but I'm getting <laughs> probably not ever. Just kidding. Um, but I got into racing because I, I love the teamwork and the camaraderie. And you combine that with being out on the ocean. And there's a lot of unexpected conditions that come at you. So you have to think fast on your feet. You're responsible for not just this, the performance of, of your boat and your crew, but the safety of your boat and your crew. And I mean, I think the reason I'm still leading people is because I, I love the payoff that you personally get when you see the light go on in someone's eyes, that they've achieved something they didn't think was possible for themselves. And that happens kind of at hyperspeed in sailing. And your size doesn't matter so much in sailing. So I can be five foot, three and a half and be effective. Uh, right. It's a, a major asset on a boat because a boat, yeah, yeah. Big, yeah, tall guys aren't really helping out too much. Well, they, some are. You need, you need big guys on the mast sometimes. You need right, right. big guys grinding or big people, strong people sure. grinding. There's a point um, of diminishing returns, perhaps. <laughs> there is. But like I can move around on a boat, a sure. lower center of gravity, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. I eat less. I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> probably a welcome guest in that regard. <laughs> But I'm mostly a cocktail sailor now. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. I don't I don't get out as much because of my my job. Well, let's talk about how you first heard about pager duty, maybe, or when you first heard about it. When did you decide to join and what was that process like? That's about three and a half, a little over three and a half years ago. Someone reached out to me and said, there's there's a company you really should look at. It's really interesting. You'd be perfect for it, they said. And I said, well, what is it? They're like, well, it's kind of infrastructure software. It's SaaS. And I said, no, thank you. And they're like, what do you you mean? (laughs) Well, I've done infrastructure software. I'd really like to get back into either a two-sided marketplace or B2B2C, really leverage the consumer marketing side of my brain again. And I'm just not convinced I, I want to sell to IT anymore. And they said, really, it's it's a special company. You should look at it. And I ignored the <laughs> I ignored the inbound <laughs> until about the eighth um, <laughs> plea, which came from someone I respect who said, look, just have breakfast with one of the investors. Like just just have breakfast or lunch with this guy and listen. And and if you still think it's a you know not interesting, we'll leave you alone. We promise. I took a meeting with John O'Farrell, who was I think partner number three at Andreessen Horowitz. He was part of uh, uh, the company that Mark and Ben were at, uh, LoudCloud, which eventually was sold to HP. 
And John had led the Series 8 for PagerDuty and had been in and around the business for several years by the time he got to me. And what he described was a situation that, if it was true, I thought was pretty unique, which was the co-founder, one of three co-founders who had been leading the business, had recognized that that he had, did not have the skills and the experience to take the business through its sort of next several chapters of growth and was looking for someone to come in and not just help him do that, but but lead him in doing that. So essentially, he was looking for a new boss. And very rarely do you find a founder who has led a business successfully be willing to step aside and offer their job and to to another leader and, in fact, work for another leader, uh, much less step aside and make room for someone to have the autonomy to really build and grow a company uh, in an effective and, I think, enjoyable way. And so Alex was very special in that regard. I was a little cynical that that story was actually true, (laughs) uh, to be honest. But John is very down to earth. He's an Irishman. He's very convincing, but not sort of slick in the way he's he's, uh, explaining something. And so I agreed to take another meeting and I, I met Alex and I think between meeting one and meeting two, I asked for financials and board packs, and they were like, don't you want to get to know us? <laughs> like, <laughs> I had looked at a lot of other Let's roles the at numbers. the time, and I, I have learned that the way people describe the size of a company is highly variable and subjective in this uh, town, in the Bay Area. So sure. I just wanted to really get a sense of what the business looked like, and they were very transparent and shared that information with me under NDA. So when I was talking with Alex, you know, I was almost immediately smitten. He's a super humble person. He is very bright. He's one of the fastest learners I've ever come across. He's open. He's super transparent. He asks really insightful questions. He asks a lot of questions. And he truly was, I think, well on his way to being ready to hand over the reins of the business. And that like I said, is super unique because normally when that situation happens, things have either gone fully pear-shaped and the business is upside down and it's truly a turnaround or the founder is saying that they're willing to let go, but they're really not. And mm-hmm. maybe they shouldn't. Maybe they don't need to be. And maybe what they need is a COO. But Alex you know, has gone on record saying that he considered looking for a COO, but felt like he wouldn't get an A-plus sort of top person in that role. And so, again, very insightful very thoughtful, but very high humility on his part. And to the day, he's been a phenomenal partner to me. So he's still on our board and he's also our CTO and he leads our community, our DevOps community efforts, and also does a lot of work with our sales team, spends a lot of time out talking to our customers and just sharing what he's learned. And he's, he's an incredible friend. So there's been some excitement in the news recently about PagerDuty. Uh, the company is now a public company. And what was that March like towards uh, the IPO? What were there any major inflection points where you were able to achieve something where you said, "Okay, this I can see it on the horizon now. We're going to get there." What was that process like of joining the company and leading it to the IPO? It's been an incredible mission. I mean, it's and it's not. We're not even close to being done. I feel like we're sort of just gotten out of the gates. I use the sailing analogy with my team and. It's a little bit like pushing the boat off the dock and getting over the start line. Right. But we aren't even out the heads. We're not even out in the big ocean. There's still is still a lot of sea in front of us. And I truly feel that way. The The IPO process was actually a lot of fun. And a lot of people do refer to it as a march because it's, it is very systematic. There are a number of things that you have to do that are required by the SEC or by regulatory framework. There are a lot of practices that are well understood that the banks tend to direct you to. So it can feel 
like a march if you let it. But in our case, it just really felt like the next stage in our business growth. And I have a, just an incredible team. I'm surrounded by not only brilliant, but very kind and supportive and helpful people. And I felt like everybody leaned into this together in just a really not not only authentic, but in amazing way in how everybody played a role to ensure that that we covered every possible outcome or challenge that might have come our way. And many did, by the way, both personally and, and professionally. I had back surgery about 20 minutes before we we uh, went public. So that was interesting. Jeez. That was not planned. Yeah. We filed on the day that I had back surgery. Just uh, unexpected or what? what it was happened? not expected. I, I played golf in college and I still have a lot of lower back issues that I think get exacerbated by living on an airplane. And I found out in October that I had injured myself and was going to have to do something about it. So we waited until I had this little window during the holidays. And I, that was also when we confidentially filed. So I had to get better in time to uh, do the roadshow and That's ambitious, do what we needed the to surgery do. On the way. Yeah. And, but importantly, like my team had to cover. Like right. they had to pick up where I couldn't be there. And, you know, we had a phenomenal year last year as a result. And I think it just... It just speaks to the depth of the leadership and and the the entire team at PagerDuty. But it was fun. It was fun because it was an interesting challenge. We like a lot of rigor in the way we measure our business. So the public company framework for managing and reporting your financials isn't that different for us. I think we all enjoyed the process of refining our story. Even though it's hard, it's necessary. Sure. And I feel like that uh, has really helped PagerDuty on a number of fronts. The primary reason we went public was to extend our brand, was mm. to build awareness around the company. And I think uh, it's early, but we're pleased with the progress there. And we're trying not to let it change the way we do things inside the company or our relationship with our users or our customers. And it really shouldn't. There's no reason for it to. So we're still right. just as goofy and geeky and crazy and intense as we've always been. So let's talk about the team for a minute, because I think there's around 43% of your team that are women. Is that accurate or close to close to being accurate? I haven't checked the count today, but I think that's so, close. So, somewhere close, right? <laughs> it's so, a lot of women. So that's I'd like uh, to be more. <laughs> that's that's pretty unique for uh, the area we're in and the space we're in, right? Uh, yeah. Are there any ways, tips or strategies that you use to build that diverse team? Well, I know you, you asked about women, but we really think about how we build a richly diverse group of people that reflect the community right. we serve. So it's not just about gender. It's about age. It's about ethnicity. It's about functional expertise, education or not education. Right. And so one of the things we did was make it very clear that we didn't think building a diverse company was a nice thing to do. We thought it was a business imperative and an important part of our strategy. And that in order to be successful in doing that, we needed an inclusive culture mm -hmm. and we needed to operationalize ways to demonstrate to candidates and to employees that PagerDuty is a company where you have an equal opportunity to kill it in your career, where you will feel not only feel a sense of belonging, but can thrive in our environment. And we're also, I think, pretty honest about the fact that we are not perfect and we still have a lot of work to do. So while I'm proud of the strides that we've made in terms of having a gender balanced leadership team, we're near gender parity on the board. Uh, we have improved and I think are in excess of, of industry, industry standards just about everywhere in terms of diversity. There's still much to be done. But some of the things I think we have done successfully that we continue to build on are 
We've adjusted our recruiting practices in many ways from ensuring that all of our recruiting managers are bias trained to ensuring that every slate is 50% underrepresented. Every final slate is 50% underrepresented, which is different than the Rooney rule where you just have one underrepresented person in the panel, which means they have less than, I think, a 2% likelihood of being successful in getting the job. But also making sure that when someone considers pager duty as a place to build their career, they look around and they see people who resonate with them and they hear values that resonate with them and they see those values at work every day in the workplace. So that can be simple things like our interns, they immediately drop into something and become responsible for it. They're not set on a project to clean up a database or get somebody coffee. They they are pushing code. They're deploying code into production, mm. which scares the crap out of some of them. <laughs> but, but it means that you, they know that they're going to be trusted. They're going to get real experience at PagerDuty and um, that we are serious about building a career for them. That it's not just a one summer of a couple of weeks of fun and going to ball games in in the Bay Area. And a lot of our interns are in Toronto and uh, increasingly I hope to see some pop up in Atlanta and some of our other regional locations. I also think that you have to look harder to not only find great talent, but to create access for mm-hmm. people who otherwise wouldn't have access to careers in the tech industry. Right. And so, for example, we chose Atlanta after looking at 121 cities in North America as our next office because it's a place where there are, I think, eight universities that produce the highest number of underrepresented engineers, undergrad engineers in the country. And uh, a lot of those engineers want to work in the tech industry. A lot of people in Georgia want to work in the tech industry right. in the Southeast, but there aren't a lot of companies there. So it creates an opportunity for us to not only uh, find interesting, diverse candidates, but also to create access for them to their first job in the tech industry that could result in a great career in tech, either with us or or outside of the tech industry. And, you know, the last thing that I'll mention that we changed is we don't require a four-year degree for employees. We have a lot of great employees that have come through Hackbright or other organizations that ha- teach people how to code, that prepare people for careers in a professional workplace. And, uh, increasingly, whether it's veterans or it's people returning to work later in life, we think there are opportunities to continue to strengthen the foundation of the people that lead pager duty by looking in places that maybe not everybody else is going to look. Sure. And I think that's so cool of looking past the traditional four-year degree, because I think at this point, we're now way beyond that, where diverse candidates come in with this, you know, you might not be able to quantify their experiences right away, whether they're a veteran or, you know, a single mom that's learning to code or something like that. But there are exciting opportunities there. What do you think the future of education looks like? And are our kids going to be going to college or are you going to encourage uh, anyone maybe in your family or kids to go to a code school or to go to a boot camp? What's the future education look like? It's a hard one. I I don't know. And I'm a little worried about it, actually. I'm worried about the cost of education. I'm worried about the, the access to education. I'm worried about even more basic challenges like the access to the internet uh, and the access to three square meals for children in elementary school or the access to the right to vote. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so education, I think, is a big problem. But I think when you look at the enormous gap in between people who are very financially fortunate and have a lot of access to people who don't, that worries me more than anything. I think that we have to teach our children to be lifelong learners and be open to less conventional ways of learning than 
structured education, whether that's how they think about exploring music or interests or topics that uh, maybe their friends are not exploring or how they get out of the bubble, quote unquote, that they live in to experience other cultures and other Mm -hmm. communities. I mean, simple things like schools have attendance policies, and I get that those policies are important, but what about the opportunity for children to see the world outside of the world that they live in and learn outside the classroom? So I actually think there's a fundamental challenge with education in general, not just secondary education, but I haven't figured out how we solve that yet. Sure. So I wouldn't expect you to, but I just, I I wanted to get get your take on it. How have mentors played a role in your career? And if there have been any mentors, investors, or bosses you've had that have really shaped your business experience? I have a lot of mentors. I have mentors for different things. And they have absolutely shaped not just my business experience, but shaped the way I lead, the way I bring myself to work, how I think about and see the world, and how I keep my feet on the ground. So some of them are folks that I've worked with. Zach Nelson, for instance, who is on our board, was a customer. And I was a customer of his when I was at Keynote and he was at NetSuite. And we would go for a walk on the golf course and talk about how projects were going between our two companies. And, you know, a lot of people say, like, who has time to golf? Neither of us did. So he would take me for like 11 holes or seven holes, whatever there was time for, instead of playing 18. And it's interesting how much more you learn about a person and how much more you can get done when you're just walking outside in the fresh air instead of sitting in a measured 30-minute conference meeting. And we probably spent 90 minutes together instead of 30 minutes together. But in that time, there's a trust that builds. And Mm -hmm. so I learned a lot about customer relationships uh, in working with Zach. And I also learned about his leadership style and NetSuite was a lot bigger at the time than Keynote was and certainly bigger than PagerDuty is now. And so I got to see his world through his lens, which gave me some, you know, early view of what my world might look like in the future. And I like the way he steers me in different directions, the way he asks questions. He asks them with a lot of empathy uh, coming from someone who's been in the seat. Mm -hmm. And I think that that means a lot to me. He's not afraid to challenge me. And I think your best mentors are not cheerleaders. They are the people who will hold you to account and challenge you. And uh, he's got a great sense of humor. So and he knows what's important. Like his he, I think, is enjoying his life right now. He's probably playing golf while we're speaking. (laughs) He's in very good fit shape, you know, because he gets a lot of time to work out. Now he's not working full time, but he's been a huge add to the board and a great mentor to me. And I think it, instead of having to go through an interview process and find someone from the outside that I didn't know well, this was a relationship that developed over the years. Now, like, we're not friends. We don't go on vacation together. Like, I don't know him that well, mm-hmm. but we do have a very strong working relationship and I've learned a lot from him. Another example of, of a mentor is uh, our chief of staff, Catherine, and she's a lot younger than I am. She's got a lot less experience in the workplace, but she sees our company and our culture and the challenges that I look at every day through a very different lens than I do. And I often ask her for advice or her first take on something or her instinct, uh, primarily because it will often be different than my instinct. But she studies the way I work and the Mm -hmm. way I think because she's kind of with me all the time. And so she'll often have a point of view that I haven't thought of, but that is formed by how she's seen me behave or think in the past. So she's very good at preempting how I might think about something or what question I might ask. And like I said, I've learned a lot from her. Very cool. And Jennifer, thank you so much for being generous with your time. We have two final questions here and then uh, we'll let you run. How do you think about paying it forward? So a lot of us in Silicon Valley have been 
you know, blessed or lucky enough to get an opportunity that we maybe didn't quite yet deserve or we weren't quite ready for. Uh, and we have this strong desire to pay it forward to others now. So how are you thinking about paying it forward in your career? So right now, the way I pay it forward is sort of threefold. One, uh, when someone asks me for help or advice, and I do get a lot of that, if if they're somebody that I'm somehow connected to in any small sure. way, I will try and find the time to do it. And I know that's frustrating for my executive assistant <laughs> and it's hard to fit it into my calendar. But as recently as yesterday, I did a 30 minute call with another uh, young CEO who's who's a founder who's building a startup who had some questions about my experience. And I learned something speaking with her, mm-hmm. but a lot of people have helped me. And so I, I want to pay that forward. And so anytime someone ask me specifically for some kind of help as opposed to like, can we have a coffee? Because if you ask me for a coffee and delegate to me what I should help you with, that's too hard. Pretty, um, pretty rough. I will, I will try and I will try and make sure I can make that happen. Likewise, I get asked to speak on a lot of panels uh, and at a lot of conferences about inclusion and diversity and equity and or equality, depending on how you look at it. And we will always try and make those fit if we can fit them in with my business travel and uh, with what I've got to get done at work, because anywhere where we can share best practices that we've either seen or that we've experienced ourselves to help accelerate the path to an equal and just working environment in the tech industry, uh, I'm going to dig in and try and help with. And then lastly, we are really deeply invested at PagerDuty in developing leadership capability for employees and managers and hopefully the future leaders of the tech industry, much in the way Procter & Gamble did when I was there. And I don't think very many companies are investing, particularly at our early stage, in leadership development, in classic management development and leadership training that I think is uh, important for our industry in the next 10, 15, 20 years to ensure that there are people who not only have experience, but have foundational training and a basis to to work from that helps them lead companies in an ethical way, uh, in an inventive and innovative way, in a fair and just way, and hopefully in a clever, clever and efficient way. And so we're, we're like I said, I think investing ahead of our, our game and doing that. There's probably one other thing I should mention, uh, and that is pagerduty.org. So we, a little over two and a half years ago, convinced our board to support us in taking the 1% pledge. As a result of going public, 1% of our equity will fund into a charitable foundation that we can leverage to help other non-for-profits deliver on their mission. And we also donate 1% of our product. We have a special pricing package for non-for-profits. We also help amplify their missions and their brands and what they're trying to do. And then our employees are given 20 hours a year uh, so that we donate 1% of our employee time. Uh, and so th- we're getting started there. It's early. Olivia Khalili, who's running PagerDuty.org, is doing a great job. And I'm excited about uh, how they ma- that may grow over time. And final question, what's the best business advice you've ever received? Play the long game. I love it. Jen, thanks so much. This was fun. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Chad. Mission.org is a media company with a daily newsletter, network of podcasts, and brand studio designed to accelerate learning. Head to Mission.org to get award-winning podcasts like The Mission Daily, The Story, IT Visionaries, Education Trends, Marketing Trends, Future of Cities, and more. Mission Studios has worked with companies like Salesforce, Twilio, and Katera, 
to create custom media channels that drive results. Make sure to subscribe to the mission's daily newsletter at mission.org. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.